Welcome back to Creative Block. My name is Kyle Marshall. I am the owner of Media Lab YYC, which is located here in the great Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And this is a podcast where I get to talk to artists and creative entrepreneurs about where they've been, where they are, and where they hope to be. Now, if you're unfamiliar of exactly the setup of Media Lab, we are a part of a co-workspace called The Bridge. And we have been since we opened up. It's it's a long, somewhat convoluted story, but uh, Lena Huffman, who is the wife of my guest here this week, Jess Huffman, reached out to me on social media, I believe it was Facebook, over a year and a half ago, and asked, hey, we like what you're doing, what you're trying to set up, what your intention is with Media Lab. Would you like to partner up with us? And yes, a, a part of me thought that I was being internet stalked, but it turned out that it was real people. And I soon got to meet Jess Huffman. And from there, it's felt like a pretty great partnership. I have utilized Jess for his insight to coach me through rough times. As a new entrepreneur, I am often racked with insecurity where I'm not quite sure if I'm doing the right thing, quote unquote, the right thing. And what Jess has been really handy at is being able to sit down with me and kind of talk me down from the ledge, so to speak, allowing me to, you know, vent my frustrations and my insecurities and my doubts and being able to push me towards something that is better and greater than what I thought I could accomplish in the first place. What I also appreciated about this episode is that you can know somebody for quite a while, and in this case, almost a year and a half, and not really know the person. Meaning, you don't know their backstory, where they came from, the hardships they found, the successes they had in their early life. All that is not something we normally just throw into a conversation. And so I was so excited about this talk because I got to reveal things about Jess that I just had no idea about in the first place. But we'll get to that here in this episode. What I should do here at the very beginning, though, is let you know that Creative Block is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. And something that I like to do here when we talk about the Alberta Podcast Network is recommend another show that you might really enjoy. And I am going to point out to you something called A Branded World. This is hosted by Louisa Campos, and it offers step-by-step guides and easy-to-implement advice on how to build meaningful brands and captivate audiences. I have been able to listen to a couple of episodes. I've also been able to meet Louisa in person once here before. And I can say that this is a valuable resource to any of those entrepreneurs out there who might be trying to understand the whole business and marketing world. You can find it and all the great shows at albertapodcastnetwork.com. This episode of Creative Block is also brought to you by Smart Security from Shaw Business. With cloud-managed auto-updates, Smart Security makes sure that your data or data is always protected. Shaw Business, powering the entrepreneur. To learn more, you can visit shawbusiness.ca. Thank you so much to our sponsors, but I think it's now time to segue into my conversation with Jess Huffman. We talk about a lot of things like riding horses, moving from America, and MASH. Let's go to that now. Jess Huffman, thank you so much for joining me. 
Thank you for letting me come in here and share. I know. You just walked right down the hallway. I did. It we was, just finished a live stream out there. It's so absolutely true. It was, a, it was a hard thing to get you here into the studio. <laughs> yeah, it was. We start in a very specific way each episode, but I would love it if you could maybe introduce yourself and say just a little bit about what it is that you do. Well, my name is Jess Huffman, and I am co-founder of The Bridge, which is a co-working space in downtown Calgary, and a business coach, and I have been a business coach since 2000 uh, here in Calgary. So I'm very interested to know how that eventually became your path, but we're going to start way back. You can say it like that. That sounds mean. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to know, where were you born? I was born uh, on the shores of Lake Michigan, about an hour from Chicago. So in the U.S. In the U.S., absolutely. So, so you're, do you have dual citizenship then? Well, you used to you used to have to work to keep it, but nowadays because America is so hungry for tax dollars, they won't let you denounce your citizenship unless you pay a whole bunch of money and go through a whole bunch of paperwork. Oh, interesting. So unless Canada throws me out, I am a dual citizen. So that means. Can you actually vote in the U.S. I can, election? and I have, actually. Okay. I, I, the, my last, uh, I voted for Obama, and that was the, the last time. You have to do it by, you have to do it early. Right, okay. So, so it's not an easy process of just like no. <laughs> sending no. a letter so or actually something. in 2016, I did not vote. Right. right. Well, you you are the reason then. then <laughs> I, yeah, was I was elected. the vote, yes. <laughs> the one vote. No doubt. All right. What did your parents do then? Uh, my parents were entrepreneurs, and uh, we they owned I, – I say we because it, it was a kind of a family thing. But we owned a half a, a section, and uh, they operated a uh, ah, kind of like a Rafter 6 Lamley's composite. Uh, they, they My dad gave riding lessons and uh, trail rides, and there was a lake, and they rented boats on the lake, and they had a, like a Lamley's Westernware store. And, oh, and, interesting. Okay. Yeah, so it was our home and our business were one great big. Were mess. they making the merchandise, or they just had it brought in and they sold it? No, it was a regular retail operation, yeah. right? So, yeah. So from your very early age, that's what they were they were doing. I never remember anything other than self employment with my parents, and then being involved with it, right? Because there wasn't a work life balance. There was, oh, just, was just one that. great big, yeah. It, it was like I mean, that's kind of like what farming is too. I mean, I grew up on a farm, yeah. so I kind of know that there's no real off time. Like when cows are calving, you don't get to call in sick. No, <laughs> like you, no, you just kind of have to go out and yeah. help them. Type my, thing, my, right? my most unhappy memory uh, as a child was when the fence would be broken. And invariably, it would be broken when it was either minus 20 or pouring down rain. And my father would get us all out of bed and, dress, and we would have to go out and find the animals and get them back in and repair the fence. Yeah. So there's, the there's yeah. Fencing yeah. is the worst. <laughs> yeah. So you grew up kind of as a, a farm child then, for lack of a better word. Yeah, it was it was an interesting combination of of farming, ranching, retail, and kind of like hospitality because we did so much hosting. People from Chicago would come out and rent boats and rent horses and take lessons, and so it was an interesting combination of things. Is I I don't know maybe this is just my background rearing its ugly head too, but. Because you, that was so much of your life, the, the people that were coming from Chicago or like the big cities to come and have this like authentic experience, what is the most like out of touch thing that you saw? Uh, you know, uh, I, I, was a, I was a kid, so I wasn't deeply observing human behavior. Mostly the way they interacted around the animals was completely out of touch. They, they did stuff that as a five-year-old I knew better than to do, and you would yeah. see a 25-year-old do it. Kind of like tourists getting out of their cars to photograph a bear. 
Right. Yeah. Here in, in Bath National Park. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you just honk your horn. Like, just get back in yeah, your car. And they just look at you like they don't look blankly, at you. Yeah, like, blankly. Blankly. What's going keep on? Keep standing there. Yeah. What do you think then was the most valuable lesson from from growing up that way? It's going to sound odd, but learning. I, my father wanted us to learn how to think. And in that setting, you always had to think. Did I remember to close the gate? Did I do the things I was supposed to do? What does this thing I'm seeing mean, right? When, when it comes to like what's an animal doing or, or what does it need? What are these people doing? Are they in the right spot? Do I need to interact with them? It, it, so uh, it, it was learning how to observe and think and make decisions. Right. And did that last not what you learned, but did the uh, the ranch and the hospitality, that whole business, how long did that last for? Well, it lasted uh, from the time I was born until I think it was about 12 years old. The entire place was burned down. It was arson, and they, they set the they set the store on fire, and it just kind of traveled across and, and, and burned everything to Whoa. the ground. Did they and, ever find out who did it? Uh, no. Never found out who did it, but a couple of other operations like ours were also burned, and so the one that remained was hmm. obviously suspect, but no one ever yeah, was no. able to prove anything. But nonetheless, that altered my life, and so because it altered my parents' lives, right? So, so yeah, as a child, you're kind of at the whim of whatever yeah. is going on with your parents at yeah. that point. So, what did they choose to do? Well, they stayed on there for quite a while, and uh, then they sold that and moved on to a much smaller farm. And then they sold that, and uh, my dad decided he wanted to race harness horses, so he did that for the rest of his life, and he did that up till his dying day. Okay, he's literally, I think, the oldest person with a with a license to drive uh, harness horses on the track. I think he was like seventy eight, and he was still driving. Jeez, Louise. Okay, <laughs> and what did your mom do? My mom just was in there doing the family yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah, probably a lot like your mom. She was like. Right. <laughs> Just there supporting. Yeah, doing everything that needed to be done. Yeah, exactly. All the odds and sides. Yeah. What was your school life like? It was interesting because I went to, originally went to a, a two-room schoolhouse where there were mm. four grades in each room. Right. Yeah, which yeah. was also one of life's great gifts to me because I would finish my work rapidly and then I would listen to the next grade up and then the next grade up. Yeah. And so... I was able to pick up a lot of stuff. I mean, by the time I was through grade two, I was done with grade four, not because, you know, right. just because I was sitting there. Yeah, I, I often wonder that I'm pretty sure I'm one of the last classes that actually ever did this. But I was in a, a two-three split for two years. So I was in grade two and the grade three classroom was across the way. And then I switched over to the third grade classroom and the grade twos were still there. Uh, but I wonder if that did something for me because I did the same thing. I like finished my work as a grade tour and then we just I just listen in on mm -hmm. the on the third grade lesson and just see, okay, whatever. And you learned it. And you kind of absorb it. You do. That, you just, your brain is so malleable that you just kind of take it yeah. in, right? Well I, I I don't think we give children enough credit. I mean children are brilliant and and we just assume because they don't know a lot because they haven't had time to learn it because they're not old enough to have learned right, right. a lot <laughs> that they're therefore not intelligent yet or something like that. But you know, you could you can teach a child way beyond what we teach them. Yeah. There's this great – if I can actually find it, I'll, I'll put it into the show notes. But uh, there was this great article I read years ago about this guy who went into – it was either a kindergarten or a grade one classroom. And in about an hour taught 
it was like 28 of the 30 children, how binary works. Yeah, I believe that. Just by asking questions. And it's yeah. like, okay, so if we only, how, like, how do you count to 10, right? They show you their fingers. Okay, so how would you count to 10 if you only had two fingers? And they kind of figured it out. They it figured like, right, it out. So this is, and they just kept going, going, going until they could understand, great, I understand how binary works. <laughs> yeah, no, as, long as, you're in, as long as you're reasonable enough as an adult to understand that you have to build a foundation underneath and then build level mm-hmm. by level, the child can absorb an amazing amount of sophisticated material. Right. Really. <laughs> so yeah. did, when did you go to like a bigger school? Uh, so probably grade six. So I was like halfway through my second room and, <laughs> right. and then yeah. moved to a bigger school. Okay. Yeah. Did you have, I don't know, grand illusions or designs of Pursuing secondary education? Like, what is it that you wanted to be, basically is what I'm asking, when you were a kid? You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a scientist, which, and, and that probably boiled down to either archaeology or else physics or maybe astronomy mm-hmm. or, you know, as a kid, it was all, uh, you, could, you could do it all, right? Right, it, right. There was no notion that, uh, that I had to specialize. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. You, you don't even have that concept down probably at that point. When did that start to change, though? Like, when did your past start to change to something different? Uh, you know, I don't don't know exactly. Uh, I, I think I got dissuaded from uh, science and sort of moved bizarrely mm-hmm. into music. Uh, my my mother. Uh, was had a tremendous voice, and she was offered a full scholarship to Indiana University as a voice student, which she turned down because she married my father instead, which was typical right. in those days. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, but you know, had a really musical family, and so I kind of moved in that direction. And I actually entered university as a music major. Interesting. Yeah. Right. Well, but before we get there, uh, something I always like to ask—I shouldn't say always—something I will often ask here on this show is, do you recall the first thing you ever became obsessed with? Whether it was like something in pop culture or anything else. What, can you recall the first thing that you just were like, I love this? Um, yeah. Ancient history and archaeology was the okay. first thing that I became <laughs> obsessed with. And what was it about that just, I don't know, like exploded your mind? Uh, it, it seemed like a window into understanding people because if you could watch what they did and why they did it in the past, then you could you mm-hmm. could extrapolate that. Not to, to be the armchair psychologist here, but that is fascinating because I feel that that is kind of what you do now uh, in a way. Is like you like to, as a business coach, you have to kind of understand the person, understand their past, understand how it's working with the present sort of thing. So. There's kind of that through line. Well, there is. The the biggest thing with with coaching, uh, people think that business is all numbers and, you know, accounting and licenses and everything. And they usually come to you with that notion. But self-employment, and this is what fascinated me about self-employment and and coaching, uh, it's the most intense journey into self-development that you will ever do. Sure. Immediately upon becoming self-employed, all your fears, all your strengths – all your insecurities, all your your strengths, they all immediately become, you know, right there. They're right there, visible in your face, and uh, you got to deal with them. And and uh, seeing what's blocking people is always what's 
what's interesting to me. Yeah. And then try and figure out a way to get them around the block. <laughs> it's usually yourself, spoiler alert. It's always yourself. <laughs> yeah. It's always, it's always something you believe. Yeah. So a music major. So what was your goal with entering school as a music major? Was it composition or was it playing? I just liked it. And so I just wanted to do it because it was a rather thrilling experience to be part of a band. So I did a whole bunch of, I was in jazz ensemble. I was in concert chorus. I was in the barbershop quartet. I was in the madrigal group. Was uh, it singing or were you playing an instrument as well? Uh, most of this was singing. Uh, so. And so was that something you actually ultimately got a degree in or did you change at some point? No, uh, it was, I was doing the starving artist routine mm -hmm. and I got up one morning and said, there doesn't seem to be a future in the starving artist routine. <laughs> okay, sure. And uh, so I, I just started looking for a way to, to make a, a better life from a standpoint of, of creature comforts, I guess, you know, like being able to afford a car and a, mm -hmm. you know, just pay your bills on a regular basis. <laughs> and so I kind of moved away from music as a career choice and, uh, and moved into psychology, uh, which has been incredibly beneficial to my career. Uh, yeah, I would assume so. And then that turned into uh, a conversation with my graduate school manager. I can't remember the, the name now, but uh, where I said, well, you know, when I get my PhD, how much am I going to make? And he said, oh, if you're lucky, uh, your starting salary would be $19,000 a year. And I said, I'm working part-time in sales now and making twenty-five. And he said, well, that's the reality. And I w walked out of there thinking, yeah, that's the reality. And that was the end of my academic career. And okay. so, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So I, I, chose, I chose to move into the area of self-employment. So d you never eventually got your degree then is what you're saying? No, I did. Oh, you did. Okay. Oh, yeah, I did. I got the degree, but I stopped my plans of moving on to a PhD and becoming gotcha. a, okay. you know, a stodgy old ap academic mm -hmm. someplace. Yeah. What school was it? It, it, that was kind of all over the place too, okay. but uh, it was uh, it down in uh, Boca Raton, Florida. Okay, so nice. it was Florida Atlantic University. Yeah, <laughs> the winters are way better there. It was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you're out on your own here now. You decide that you want to go into like self-employment. What was that first self-employment avenue that you went into? The very first one was a complete failure. Uh, I decided to buy an automotive additive distributorship, and I bought a, a very cheap van okay. and loaded it up with my additives and drove around trying to convince businesses, you know, gas stations and auto dealers to use my product instead of the ones they were using. Uh -huh. And the vehicle was interesting. It was a, it was a Corvair van. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, the Corvair is what – it's unsafe at any speed. <laughs> okay. And, yeah. and, I, and I used to drive it over railroad track and the engine would drop down and I would have to go out and get the jack out and jack it back up and get on the engine mounts and then continue to drive. That, that was my first attempt at, I was 19. I okay. just lost my money and that yeah. was the end of that. And How so, long do you think you were doing that for? It was almost a year. Okay. Yeah. It just, did you make any sales? Yeah, I did, but not enough. Yeah. You, okay. You just, and, you know, I, I learned that you can't, you, you really can't compete with people with money if you don't have any money. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Because they can just wait you out, which is essentially what they did. But, you know, from there, you know, I, I owned a mortgage company. I was a partner in a residential construction company for a while. What caused you things. to move on to the next thing? Opportunity, I, I suppose. I, in order to pay for my university, I took advantage of what then was the United States GI Bill. Mm-hmm. 
where they just essentially paid for your university. If you, you traded three years of your life in the military, and then they paid for your school. Okay. So, so I did traded, you actually go to the military? Yeah, I spent three years, uh, most of it in Europe. And uh, What ages? Sorry. What ages? Yeah. I was in my early 20s. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I was tired of working my way through university one class at a time, so I decided I would take advantage of the GI Bill and get it paid for so that I could just go to school. That was fun. I learned a lot. Uh, one of the things I learned is I wouldn't recommend the military to anybody, <laughs> but I had a good time. Yeah. So mostly in Europe. Yeah. Where? where Germany. Oh, in Germany. Germany, okay. yeah. And this would, have, would this, would have, this would have been before the wall came down? Uh, yeah, it was yeah, before yeah. the wall. Not much before the wall, right, but before right. the wall. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So what was Germany like? It was just a lot of fun. I yeah. mean, I had a, a kind of... Uh, finagled my way into a great job. I was a medic because I was a non-combatant. Uh, I wasn't. I'm, I didn't join the military to kill anybody. I joined the military to get my university paid for. Mm-hmm. So I became a medic, and uh, I got a job. Uh, I got kind of like shuffled over to. Where I was the NCOIC, the non-commissioned officer in charge of the troop medical clinic at night. Oh. So I would spend one night on, and then have two days off. And then one night on and two days off, kind of like being a fireman. Yeah, so yeah. then the two days off, I would tour Europe. And I saw a whole bunch of Europe thanks to the U.S. government. <laughs> thanks, Uncle Sam. Exactly. Yeah. How close was it to MASH? Uh, well, MASH was during wartime. Which, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, in combat's <laughs> way different than – but uh, – no, nah, it was nowhere near as fun or interesting. Okay, as right. it was. It was. Yeah, it was pretty boring actually. All right. uh, so you come back then from that experience, and you you, you go through all these different uh, jobs. I'm just wondering if um, I know you're saying like opportunity was one of the main drivers of of changing different things, but is it also something that you become maybe bored is the wrong word, but complacency is not something that you like to have. Uh, I don't think it's complacency. I. I think I'm an explorer. Mm-hmm. I mean, to sum it up, I it's like once I've examined something and understand it and know how it works, and I get really anxious to examine and explore something different. Right. So that's all it was, there was to it, really. You, you, you would, I don't know if it was complacency as much as it was, okay, I get this. Uh-huh. That looks interesting over there. Mm, okay. <laughs> so constantly moving it. So how did you eventually find your way into Canada? I... Had a mortgage company, a construction company, got tired of all that. I decided that I wanted to make a, a difference in the world as opposed to just making a living. So I became part of Greenpeace. And I kind of worked my way up to where I was running the, uh, the area for Greenpeace. And then that wasn't very lucrative. It was interesting. But uh, I moved on from that and uh, took a couple of contracts in marketing. And it's kind of all over the place, but that's what yeah. I did. And uh, the opportunity came up to visit Canada, uh, specifically Calgary. So I came up, spent 10 days here, liked it, and uh, went home, wasted a little bit of time, and then came back. It was another place to explore. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think it was about Calgary that drew you here? Well, one of the things I didn't like about – I was living in Florida, and one of the things I didn't like about Florida is that there are no mountains. I really love mountains, and so the mountains were really close. Uh, the people were really friendly. The economy was really good. Sure. And uh, the, the, the believe it or not, there's uh, Canada is yet unspoiled. Uh, you know, environmentally is there's a lot of spoiled areas, but compared to the United States, mm-hmm. it's way less spoiled. It's way open, and 
And one of the things that really fascinated me about Canada was it's not done yet, right? <laughs> it's it's like really new. Well, yeah, okay. Really and what, new. And what, what do you mean by that? They, well, I haven't decided who they are, right? Canada doesn't know who it is really, what it wants to be really. And, and so there was an opportunity to get involved in – it's almost like a birth of a nation thing as mm. opposed to the United States, which is very cut and dried and knows exactly who they are and exactly what they want to be. And exactly what they want everybody else to be on, on top of that. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, coming from me who was went to school for an English degree and took, in, took a bunch of different Canadian lit courses, that is the essential question that every Canadian author struggles with at least some point in their career. It's like, what is Canada and who are Canadians? And I don't know if anyone's actually answered that question yet. Well, I think it's, they're always going to have a problem answering it as long as they resist answering it with so much energy. I mean, it's almost like to be Canadian is to not be Canadian. Yeah, 100%. Right. Yeah. And to like to be American is real simple. You're American. That's the end of the story. You know who you are. You know what your history is. You know what that means. And here it's like, well, you know, really, we don't tell people what to do. And we don't, you know, we don't want people to be different. We want everybody to get along together and multiculturalism. And, and it makes it very difficult to define a nation. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's a great conversation to get into at some other point. But what then convinced you to stay in Calgary? Beyond the fact that I liked it? Yeah. Like, uh, when did you know, like, I guess when you moved from Florida after that 10-day stint, was that with the uh, mentality that you're going to stay here, or were you just coming up again for a second trip? No, I, I think that my intention was to stay here. Plus, mm. I had met somebody up here, so okay. then we got, you know, got involved, got married, had a couple of kids, and... Right. Okay. So yeah. did the whole family Who thing. you meet, who you've met, Jacob and Aiden. Are yes, the, right. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I met your children. Yep. <laughs> I guess just talking about that briefly, being becoming a father, having that family life, what did that teach you? Well, I had the good fortune of having a father who was a great example. And uh, his his philosophy was that it's not his job to tell us what to think. Mm -hmm. It's his job to kind of like be a few steps down the road. It's like it's a dark road and he's holding a lantern, right? Right. And so we're supposed to find our own way, fall down, pick ourselves up, and he's just there to hold a lantern and give us some advice. And I like that. And and it it made for a, a good life for me. Right. And uh, so I've tried to do the same thing with, with my children is like not to tell them what to think, just teach them how to think. And let them be whatever they want to be. Jacob, who is my youngest boy here, he got into rap music. And I think he got into it because I told him once that the only kind of music I really didn't enjoy very much was rap. Sure, and immediately yeah. after that, within a week, he was deeply involved and stayed deeply involved for years. And all I could do was just tolerate it and, yeah. and carry on conversations with him. And, you know, well, I mean, all of a sudden one day he got over it. Yeah. Thank God. I mean, as a I was a teenager myself once, and even I don't know interacting with with younger people, whatever it is, even if you can't verbalize it, there's just something weird about there has to be a, just that little bit of rebellion. I think even if it's not overt, but it's like I need to define myself in rejection of or in opposition of my parents somehow. It so seems they like to this, be and I like this. Yeah, that's how it's going to be. And I think that's going to happen. Even like I gave them free reign to be whatever they wanted to be. And even under those circumstances, they would poke around until they found something that they thought might bother right. me and pick it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's also the other thing. I mean, there's going to be uh, some exceptions to this. But, I mean, as soon as 
someone in authority tells you not to do this or don't look at this or don't read this, like, what's the first thing we want to do? Oh, well, I want to look at that. If you're, if you're telling me I can't do it, yeah. well, obviously I want to. I, I'm interested and curious, what, how have your children inspired you? Oh, my God. They, they, there's a quote, and I can't remember who said it or even say it properly, but uh, to paraphrase it, it says it, the value of being a parent is not that parents raise good children, but that children create parents who are better people. Mm. And it's just really made me a better person to, uh, to watch them grow, to help, you know, to be there, to, to just broaden your thinking, to try to include their motivations and everything. It's just, it's a fascinating experience. Right. Very yeah. rewarding. I wouldn't, that's one thing, I wouldn't trade that for anything. You, you eventually became a professor, a teacher, is that correct? Well, it depends on, on as a coach, right. okay, I, uh, I got a contract with Momentum, mm. which I held for 18 years. And what's Momentum? So it was just one of my contracts, but it turned into a very large contract, and I essentially provided coaching and instruction in their self-employment program, and actually in most of the programs they offered, so their business accelerator, their women's venture, just about everything over time. So I spent a lot of time in the classroom. Yeah. What it, I guess being in that role, what did you find valuable? Like being someone who was giving information off instead of just trying to uh, be your own entrepreneur at the same time, like what was the value of being able to teach other people the stuff that you knew? That's a good question. I mean, I enjoyed it thoroughly and, and the, uh, I learned a lot, not having given a lot of thought, but possibly what I enjoyed most about it is how much I learned. Right. Because th- there was each and every person, I mean, I, I probably worked with, well over 500 people over that over the course of those years, and all of them were starting their own business. And to to run into so many different variations of personal blocks and issues and problems and and uh, just things that needed to be worked through, and also different levels of obstinacy or not being open to learning and not being open to coaching and having to work through it, that was all. It was really a, a growth oriented thing. I, I grew. Yeah. I mean, having done a little bit of teaching myself, it is true of how deeper you will become knowledgeable about something if you are forced to teach it. Yeah. Because people will ask you questions or come at it from a completely different angle than you've ever done before. And like, oh, okay, I have to really yeah. <laughs> know how, how to exactly. you know, handle this. And you have to start looking for teaching moments because people's minds are closed 99% of the time. <laughs> and sure. every so often, the door opens and you've got to pour stuff in when that teaching moment is there because then they close again. Right. I mean, the other thing too, I mean, it's just top of my mind mostly because there is a book written by Stephen Sondheim sitting on the table in between us uh, because of the other podcasts that I do. But he often talks about this, about how uh, he was told very early in his life that it's all fine and good to be someone who's good at something and to, you know, lean into that to become successful at that. But if you're not helping the next generation of people that are coming up, you're kind of doing a disservice to people because you're just holding it on to yourself and not giving, giving back to the community. So the best thing you can do and the most giving thing that you can do is give some knowledge to someone uh, that's coming up behind you. Yeah, and I think that's a great philosophy. Yeah. I guess let's transition a little bit now to what you're doing currently. So what does your day-to-day look like? A whole bunch of what we were talking about during the live stream, which was working in your business a lot more than working on your business. Sure. Uh, You know, uh, just the administrative stuff 
uh, in the co-working space. It takes a lot more time than I, I thought it would. This has been a learning experience, too. I guess so. I mean, yeah. I thought something we kind of skipped over is, so you are the co-owner of The Bridge, one of the co-working spaces here in Calgary, which I am a part of as Media Lab. Why a co-working space? Well, Lena actually came up with the notion. Uh, we had we had Morgana, and it was really hard to work. Uh, Morgana is your daughter, actually. Morgana's our daughter, yeah. yeah. She's now four. Uh, but, you know, two years ago when we thought we would dive into this, it was it was very difficult. Uh, you know, I, Lena especially, you know, she uh, would have to stay up late and do work because she had to take care of the, the baby more than I did because I had the contract and momentum and the coaching. And uh, so we thought, well, it wouldn't it be great if, if parents who wanted to be entrepreneurs could go to the office and – and just drop off their children, kind of like you do at a gym or at <laughs> Ikea, right, in the ballroom, and go do what you need. And when you, and yeah. you come back and your children are happy and healthy and well, and then you can pick them up and go. Yeah. So, the elevator here is filled with balls. So <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> yeah. But uh, so we thought that was a great idea, and we started looking for co-working spaces. And it, we thought we found a good one. And as soon as we signed a lease and moved in, we were here a couple of months, we found out that the landlord was not aware of our intention to have child-minding. Oh. And and strictly forbid it, and so a lot of there was a lot of negotiation, a lot of conversation, and a lot of time wasted uh, as we tried to reconfigure the, the the focus of the business away from being here for parentpreneurs, which was kind of like the term we were using for parent yeah. entrepreneurs, and uh, just to anyone, which also turned out to be a good thing. Yeah. Right. But. It was, a, it was a little jarring. It was a bit of a, a learning experience to have your model kind of whisked out from underneath your feet no, before sure. you really launch it, yeah. Would you like to sometime bring that back, if at all possible, uh, the idea of bringing your kids to work? No, I think that's because, because going back to the beginning of our conversation, the way we both grew up, where kids and parents work together and you, you, know, you, you learned a lot. I think you learn a lot more when you are able to be around adults. You know, being shuffled off into a room and told to be quiet isn't very educational. No. Right? Yeah, so when, you're, I, when you're struggling there, like for me as a, you know, tween and teenager working on the broken fence or vaccinating cows, yeah. or you're in it with adults, right? You're yeah. just in it together. Yeah, and they're teaching you because yeah. they have to. Because yeah. if you're helping them, they need you to learn enough to be able to help. Yeah. And so, so it, it's, uh, it's great for personal growth and uh, self-worth and all those things. Yeah. And so I think, I think that the, the way we do business now currently, right, the corporate world where, you know, the parents put their children in a, in a warehouse, go to work, sit at a desk for eight hours or 10 hours, and then go back and pick up their kids exhausted. I don't think that's healthy. I don't think it's yeah. been healthy for the 150 years since the rise of the Industrial Revolution. Right. And I wonder, I mean, this absolutely cannot work for every single industry or every single uh, profession either. But it's what I've been thinking about a lot is this idea that for the vast majority of people, it's you wake up in the morning, you get in your car, you drive X amount of minutes to somewhere where you actually get out and actually do work, get in your car, go through rush hour traffic again. When a lot of the jobs out there maybe not in retail, but most of the jobs out there, you could probably do from home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you don't really need to go to an office building, check in and actually do your work. 
and it's just I don't know. There's this idea is like we could get rid of some traffic. We could just like <laughs> stop having forcing people to go to some place that they don't necessarily need to go to. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we have the technology. Yeah, right? we could do that. <laughs> we if could we do wanted that. to. Yeah. There's also the idea, and this is actually. Um, Again, we were talking about during, during our live stream that we just did before this, but uh, Matt, who I hired on as an employee here, I told him straight up, I was like, I don't need you to be here at 9 a.m. started every morning. Like, come in when it's right for you. As long as you're working your eight hours that day, I don't really care when you start. <laughs> and that's just sane. Yeah. So how we got in the other methodology, I guess, was because of factory shifts and everything yeah. else. But, but you know, it, it fascinates me. It also, it's also, I find it disturbing that that you can bring your dog to work right. in a yeah. lot of places, yeah. and you can bring your comfort pet, right? right, your your support pet to a lot of locations. But if you bring your child, right. everybody looks at you like you have two heads, and it's like, what are you doing? That child needs to be in daycare. You know, how are we supposed to get work done? But the dog. Right, you know, is jumping on your leg and try, trying to lick you, and right, that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. That's why I have my support baby with me all the time, I'm just like <laughs> rocking it here while we have our conversation. But it's so deeply embedded in our culture now, right? Yeah. The, the children need to be off someplace, not being seen and not being heard. Very, it sounds very Victorian. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. We, 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 we've gone back to the, this like early 1800s philosophy, something like that. Yeah. Uh, not to give all your trade secrets away, but what do you think the the primary issue that people come to you with, like as a business coach, what was like, by and large, the most common thing people came to you asking advice about? Almost invariably, people struggle with sales and marketing. Mm. And it's, uh, and then uh, following behind that uh, would probably be the stress uh, and loneliness of being an entrepreneur. But, yeah. but most people realize early on that they have very few sales skills and that they don't understand marketing at all and that it's <laughs> critical to their success. And then the first thing they want to do is hire a salesperson and hire some marketing people. That's expensive and usually doesn't work out well. Because mm -hmm. if you can't sell your own business, you know, you're not going to be able to get a salesperson to do it for you either. So, so that's usually what brings people to coaching. Okay. <laughs> and then what do you usually tell them? Um, well, we start out with the reality that, that if you're going to be self-employed, 70% of your life is sales. Right. <laughs> and if you don't want to sell, then you probably shouldn't have become self-employed. Yeah. But now that you are, uh, I'll, yeah. let's learn as much as we can and, and beef up your marketing. And, uh, and, then, and then as you're doing that, then you start running into the loneliness and stress and have to deal with that. What do you think the biggest change in marketing has been, though, in like the past 20 years? Uh, I think really the biggest shift has has been away from product focus to uh, telling a story and trying to build relationship with your customers. Mm -hmm. Obviously, people can go anywhere and buy the same thing, which does essentially the same thing from lots of different people. So why would they choose you? Well, if the features and benefits are essentially the same and it solves the same problem in essentially the same way, assuming you haven't come up with some sort of new and incredible way to solve a problem, right. uh, the only reason they're going to do business with you is because they like your brand or they like you or both. Right. And so that's what the focus now. Yeah, I, I, I listened to this other podcast that talks about digital marketing. And what they're saying is that for the younger generations, we're talking like younger millennials and the 
what do they call them now? Gen Zs or something? Or the, yeah, or centennials, maybe. Whatever. Yeah, whatever there's a lot of different names. Whatever names they're going to throw at me this week for me to try <laughs> and remember. They they talk about that where they want the personality behind it. They don't want you just to tell them to get something. They want to know the person who is using it. Like they want to know their story. They want to know more about them. And they don't want something that's super slick and polished either. They want that feeling that is behind the scenes or just someone laying on the couch talking to you about something. Yeah. And all that being true, I just read an article of the top 50 brands that, that were favorites for Gen Z or yeah. whatever. And it was sadly standard brands that have no personalities whatsoever for the most part. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's like, well, why did they pick that? Yeah. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so I think I think that that they go both both ways. I think mm-hmm. that they love the story. I think we all do, mm-hmm. uh, and then I think they also just move in the direction of where everybody else goes, <laughs> like, which we all do. Yeah, exactly. Um, I guess what what is the biggest thing that you have learned then going and opening a co working space? Oh, what's the biggest thing that I've learned? Um, that that it's. Actually, I think the biggest shock to me was that it was it is a hospitality industry business. It's not. Uh, I, I thought it was business to business, but it's not. It's more like having uh, a Fairmont or a Hilton, uh, because that's what you're really doing. You're taking you're, you're providing service to people who are using your space. So I think it has more in common with hotels than it has in common with like the old executive suites or Regis or. Or anything like that. Mm. And that was a surprise. Yeah. I, I really thought that, that business services and coaching uh, <clears throat> was, was going to be the focus, and it's not. <laughs> um, something I, I will sometimes ask here, too, just to <laughs> throw this at you without any preparation. Are there any books that you've been, like, hugely influenced by, whether they're business books or non-business books? Oh, I don't know if I've been – I read a lot. Yeah. And I, I try to read multiple books at a time because I find that when you do that, there's this synergy that happens between the books, mm-hmm. uh, which you don't get if you read them in serial order. So uh, to – I don't think there's a book that has influenced me much. I'm, I'm a great fan of Seth Godin and everything he writes. Yeah. But that's just on the marketing side, and that comes to mind because that's what we're talking about. Sure, sure. <laughs> of course, I, you know, like on my list of books that I always have around, oddly, uh, Meditations of Marcus Aurelius is oh, something that's always around. Okay. Um, the uh, uh, the Da Te Ching is usually not too far away. Um, you know, the, so most of the, most of the things that I think I've uh, really been influenced by are more philosophical than anything else. Okay. Because you know that underlies when you have to make decisions, you you don't make you have to make them with some sort of a philosophical basis, right. some sort of an ethical yeah. foundation. I also I can't remember where I read this, but whatever decisions people make, they then justify it using philosophy a little bit too. Yeah. So, however, they actually come to their decision, they'd like to justify it after the fact, no matter what decision. Well, actually that's was. one of the truth of sales, right? Yeah. Is that all sales decisions are emotional. Yeah. But immediately after the emotional decision, we rationalize it with logical explanations. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess looking forward then, as I always say, I think people are really bad at really r- truly planning anything more than two years in the future. But if you are to look ahead, what are some things that you are hoping for or want to accomplish? I, I want to move uh, 
I, I published a newspaper for a while, and what I, I loved about publishing a newspaper was that I was able to reach a great many people with a great many questions. Uh, and one of the things that has frustrated me about coaching and even co-working is that you that, that world shrinks considerably. So I think moving forward, my, my meta goal would be to uh, move l- more to where I can reach more people. Okay. So whether it be more writing or, or, or Patreon, as I was talking to you about earlier, yeah, yeah. Or, uh, la- or classes or online courses or whatever, so I can reach more people as opposed to you know, just a, a few in a, in a small space. Right. Yeah, and that's always uh, – <laughs> that comes with its own challenges and stuff like that too. But yeah, yeah it would be nice to be able to not just be focusing on – just the people around you, but a, a wider yeah. base. And there's nothing wrong with the people around you. I yeah. mean, it's great, right? But but uh, I I did like being able to reach more people. And I remember that as being something that I, I found very gratifying. So I think I'd like to get back to that. Well, I'm hoping that you find all that you want here in the next couple of years. Uh, you always do. You always end up exactly where you wanted to be. <laughs> right. Well, uh, thank you for taking the time to come here and talk with me here a little bit. Uh, I will always pitch it this way. If people wanted to find you online, contact you in any way, what are the best ways to do that? Well, LinkedIn is usually a, a pretty good place to find me. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the bridge, the bridgeco.works. Uh, you can reach me here. Okay, perfect. Thank you again. You're welcome. Well, there you go. Thanks again to Jess Huffman for taking the time to come and talk with me. Thanks to the Alberta Podcast Network, to ATB, and to Shaw Business this week. I don't know if anyone keeps listening when we get to this part of the credits, but if you're going to be in Seattle this coming weekend, I will be there for PodCon 2. So if you want to say hi, you certainly can. And if you have suggestions for people you'd like me to talk to, even if that's you, please send those to info at medialabyyc.com. And most importantly, thanks for listening. Let other people know if you enjoy it. We'll be back again next week. Have a great day.